Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A note to our listeners before we get started. This story contains descriptions of assault and sexual violence, so please be advised. Previously on Verified. He said, try this. And I said, no, I'm good. And he got even closer, and through his teeth, he said, nobody says no to me, try it, and like shoved it in my face. This is a guy that we know has lied in cases. Not a white lie to his mom about why he's late to dinner. He's a liar. His department says it. The county attorney's office says it. The jury didn't get to know it. And even still, even now, 10 years later, after everything that he's done, and they know that he's a documented liar, he's, he has more credibility than I did and than I do. Up until this point, we've told you about two women who accused the same Phoenix police officer of sexual misconduct. The officer denied the allegations. In one case, a jury agreed with him. In both cases, his superiors did too. The officer had a bad track record, allegations of misconduct and lying. But all of that remained hidden. Reporter Dave Biscabing was the one to uncover this pattern, this pattern of cops with bad records whose past was never revealed. Dave says it all started for him with a different cop a different civilian, and a video. It's a really horrifying, horrifying incident. It's a hot summer day in July 2017. A silver Ford Taurus pulls into a motel parking lot in Glendale, Arizona. Johnny Wheatcroft sits in the passenger seat. His two kids and their mom are in the back seat. A friend is driving. We're gonna get a room, uh, swim in the pool, spend a night as a family, kind of like a staycation. Just as they back into the parking space, red and blue lights flash and a police SUV pulls up. Two officers approach the car. Hey, when you turn in here, man, just make sure you throw your turn signal out for us. That's Officer Matthew Schneider. He's the one doing most of the talking. He tells the driver that he didn't use his turn signal when he pulled into the parking lot. But very quickly, his attention turns to Wheatcroft, the passenger. Nobody has their ID on him? No. Anything with your name on it? Yeah, just grab it out real quick. Nothing in the car there shouldn't be, right, anybody? No. Nothing. Wheatcroft complains when Officer Schneider asks to see his ID. Why do you need to see my ID? The officer tells him he has to show his ID because he's a passenger. And then he threatens to take him down to the police station. Okay, well, I could take you down to the station. He accuses Wheatcroft of stuffing something into a bag on the floor of the car. Wheatcroft denies it. Schneider opens the door and grabs his right arm, and things get bad very fast. We know this because Officer Schneider is wearing a body camera, and the whole scene is being filmed. Listen, 
Okay. He's gonna fight, dude. No, I'm not, bro. No, just wait. I'm not hey, fighting. Relax. Hey, I'm not. Don't pull away. Hey, get your I'm not, taser bro. out. I'm not, bro. I'm not. You are. I'm not. I promise you that. You got a taser on you right now. He's not. He's not. I'm not doing nothing, man. I'm not doing nothing, bro. I'll tell you right now. man. What the fuck is wrong with you? Relax. Please, I am, dude. Relax. Stop, motherfucker. It's a bizarre and disturbing scene. Officer Schneider is pulling at Weecroft, but he's the passenger and is stuck in his seatbelt. He can't get out of the car. The other officer is tasing him. Turn over! Turn over, motherfucker! Schneider and other officers accuse him of resisting while they try to drag him out of the car, even though he's still caught in the seatbelt. Then his 11-year-old son climbs from the back seat and releases the seatbelt. Finally, Wheatcroft is able to move. The officers say Wheatcroft's wife hits one of them in the head with a plastic bag filled with stuff. Marcus hurt. He got hit in the head by her. We need to get her in handcuffs right now. She didn't mean to. Please don't take It gets worse. You can see Wheatcroft lying face down on the hot asphalt. His hands are cuffed behind his back, and he's screaming for help. By that point, Wheatcroft had already been tased ten times. And then, on the video, you can see Officer Schneider kick Wheatcroft in the groin, pull down his shorts, and tase him one final time in the testicles. Johnny Wheatcroft was placed in a police vehicle. Later, he was booked into jail for two counts of aggravated assault. He didn't get any medical treatment. And the officers that were involved? Well, they received almost no penalty. And no one outside the Glendale Police Force knew about the video. That is until Dave saw it two years later. So I look at this video, and it's horrific. And I'm thinking about, how does this happen? How was this not charged? This was considered acceptable conduct. I'm Natasha Del Toro. This is Verified. Full disclosure. Dave was the first reporter to uncover what happened at that traffic stop. And when he did... That distressing video quickly went viral and made national news. It was a violent encounter captured on police body. The troubling case out of Glendale, Arizona, caught on body cam. Police confronting a man at a Today, Wheatcroft's attorney, Mark Victor, called the incident one of the most blatant cases of police brutality he's ever seen. How could something like this happen? A minor traffic stop suddenly turning into a horrific scene of violence and abuse. A passenger in a parked car tased 11 times, and the whole thing witnessed by his two young sons. So Dave starts digging into the arrest, going through the evidence piece by piece, beginning in that motel parking lot and the turn signal that triggered the stop. They were there. They were there? Yeah, this is where they pulled through. We're standing in the Motel 6 parking lot in Glendale, There's a lot of concrete, and the complex is split up into a couple of buildings, with an alley in the back. Dave paints the picture for me of what happened that day in July 2017. 
They're making a right turn into this Motel 6 from this road. The police are on the other side of this building that has no windows on the opposite side. They couldn't see them turning in. No, th there was no there was way. no way to, for them to see these people turning in, so there's literally no way that they could have detected whether there was a blinker violation. There is no way they could have seen the blinker violation. They just wanted a reason to speak to the people in this car because I think they just were wanted to shake it down um, because, you know, they're just doing patrols, looking for things to do. Did, did the people in the car do anything wrong at all? Well, no, there's no blinker violation. The officers did find a small amount of meth under the driver's side, but that belonged to the driver, not Johnny Weecroft, the passenger who was tased 11 times. And again, the police said they made the stop for a blinker violation, a story that even they started to back away from. After the incident first happened, there was an internal affairs investigation. Officer Schneider was interviewed on tape, and he tries to play it both ways. And again, I mean, I look at that video and it doesn't look like it's possible. Uh, I can just say that when I saw that vehicle, I know what I, what I saw. The internal affairs investigator didn't buy his story. In fact, an officer that was kind of compiling everything that happened here into report actually reported it to her supervisor and said, I don't think it happened the way they said it happened. Then an internal investigation was conducted, and that internal investigator said, yeah, he didn't see the blinker violation. That would have been impossible. In fact, the officer admits during an internal affairs, I thought I saw it, but yeah, I guess this video looks really bad, I, but I swear I saw it. But he didn't. According to internal affairs, Schneider wasn't telling the truth. But that didn't matter to top Glendale police officials, including a sergeant, lieutenant, commander, and an assistant chief they all overturned the findings of internal affairs. One reason for their reversal may be that Officer Schneider was a star. Literally. Turns out Officer Schneider was featured in several seasons of the reality TV show Cops. In fact, he's listed as a top cop on the program website. The program producers asked to ride with Schneider because of his personality and drive. This is their star guy. This is the guy they want to show the world to. This is, this is their example that they want to portray of policing in Glendale, Arizona. And this is the guy that pulled over for, for no good reason, pulled right. this car over, took the passenger out in front of his child. While handcuffed, pulled his pants down and tased him. And tased him in the testicles. In the testicles. Their star officer. He's their guy. Top cop. Number one arrest leader. In 2018, Johnny Wheatcroft and his family sued the city of Glendale and the police officers involved in the tasing incident. After the tasing incident, Schneider was suspended for three days based on his use of force. But he kept his job, even though his bosses knew he lied. And the information about Schneider's record was not shared beyond the department. That was the trigger for me on this investigation. It was watching this horrible video that went viral and um, to then find out that he lied about the nature of the traffic stop and the department didn't care to hold him accountable for that and then didn't report that for potential Brady inclusion. 
you know what, we had a real problem here. We might have a lot of dishonest cops running around that have never been held accountable, where judges, juries, and defendants have no idea that the people that are arresting them can't be trusted. When Dave says those words, Brady inclusion, he's talking about a law that dates back to the 1960s. Stick with me. So first off, if you're accused of a crime, you have some very important rights. You probably already know about your Miranda rights. By now, they're pretty famous. You know how it goes. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say to us... Talk to my lawyer. You have the right to an attorney. Are you sure he understands your rights? He explained them to me, just like they do on television. It basically means that you don't have to talk to police without a lawyer present. That's so you don't incriminate yourself or confess to a crime you didn't commit. That Supreme Court ruling came down in 1966, and it was considered a radical change in criminal law. But that wasn't the only big deal ruling that came down back then. Three years earlier, the Supreme Court ruled in another landmark case. That one was called Brady v. Maryland. Cue all the famous movie lines that you know from that one. Nothing. Well, you're not the only one. Few people really know much about it. Turns out, it's really important. Let's listen in on why. What had happened here was that a man named Brooks was murdered in the course of a robbery. The petitioner, Brady, and his companion, Boblet, were arrested several days later. In 1963, John Brady was facing the death penalty for killing a man during a botched plan to rob a bank. His case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where his attorneys argued that the prosecution withheld evidence that could have helped Brady avoid the death penalty. The prosecutor did not give to the petitioner's counsel, nor inform the petitioner's counsel of of the existence of the fifth unsigned statement, which, at least in the one detail, the fact that Boblet, not the petitioner, was the actual murderer, corroborated the petitioner's defense. Basically, the prosecutors didn't turn over key evidence. The Supreme Court agreed with Brady. They ruled that prosecutors and law enforcement have to turn over all evidence that could help a defendant. Brady is really the idea that after you're arrested and charged, the state has to show you all their cards. And part of that is exculpatory evidence, negative information. If the arresting officer, the person that arrests you, has been caught lying in the past or committing a crime or has something that would cause their integrity or credibility to be questioned, they have to turn that over. That That is your right as a defendant. That's why some prosecutors started keeping lists, Brady lists. And there are a list of officers who have histories of dishonesty, crimes, integrity concerns, or or things that would raise their credibility in court into question. And that means it's, it's, a, it's a red flag. It, it's an indication to the court system that this officer is a problem. But while Brady disclosure rights are the law of the land, Brady lists are not. They're only a tool. A tool that police departments and prosecutors sometimes don't even use. Who makes lists and whether they're public differs from place to place. 
Dishonesty or excessive force may land you on a list in one city, but not another. When Dave learned that Glendale police officer Matthew Schneider wasn't put on the Brady lists, he started snooping around. I started looking through lawsuits against police departments or county attorney's offices to see cases where this might have been an issue. And that's when he found a case that stopped him in his tracks. And I, and I read through it and I go, wow, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a tough story to, to look at and just see how, how many different ways the system can fail someone. That's just ahead. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. So I'm here with Francis Salazar. Francis, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you asking. It's it's I'm sitting with Francis in her lawyer's office in Phoenix. She's 60 years old, a mother to four children and grandmother to 13 grandchildren. And we've come to talk about what happened to her starting in December 2013. Well, it was uh, New Year's Eve early in the morning. A routine traffic stop. At the time, Frances was a hairdresser, but she's also caring for an elderly woman to make some extra cash. I was working that morning. Uh, I was caregiving for a lady, and she was in a wheelchair handicap. And that morning, the woman asked her to stop by the bank and take out some cash for her. She gave Frances her ATM card, and a friend drove her there in a borrowed car. Then they got pulled over. I'm tired starting a day. You know, I'm dozing off. I didn't even realize we were being stopped. You know, uh, the driver nudges me and says, we're being pulled over. I look behind me and I, I see the officer. We're right in front of the ATM by that time. The officer said the temporary license plates had expired. He asked the usual questions. Driver's license, registration, you know the drill. Francis didn't have a lot to say. It was early. She was tired. But soon, she and her friend are standing outside the car, answering questions. At some point, he, he starts to tell me that he found my crack pipe and in the car. And I'm like, it's not my car, and it's not my crack pipe. The officer says that when he was searching the car, he found a crack pipe wedged down between a seat and the center console. Francis had a history of addiction and previous drug arrests. But she says that morning when she was pulled over, she was drug-free, and she certainly didn't own a crack pipe. So then he started asking me why I was so sleepy, you know. And he starts to check my arms to see if I have any uh, needle marks. He accused me of being on some kind of uh, heroin or something. Francis was handcuffed and taken to jail. But she says she refused to take responsibility for something she didn't do. I'm not going down for this. I'm going to fight this. You know, and I, I, I did what I thought necessary. However, um, it's my word against the police officer, and, and who are people going to believe? Francis is bonded out of jail after 48 hours. 
but it takes two and a half years before her case makes it into court, August 2016. That whole time, Frances felt like her life was in limbo. The prosecutors kept coming back to her over and over with plea deals. And, you know, uh, going through the court process, I was offered uh, two and a half years, and I kept saying, I'm I'm not going to take that. And I said, they asked me, what's the least amount of time you'll take from the state of Arizona? And I said, the least I'll take from the state of Arizona is an apology. As the waiting went on, her mother was getting more sick, and she pleaded with Francis to take a deal. If you don't win, she says, you're facing 6 to 15 years. I won't be here for 6 to 15 years. She goes, please, just consider signing the plea. Go do two and a half years and come back to me. And I'm like, Mom, I can't do that. When her trial starts, Frances was optimistic. I really thought we were going to win. I really believed in the system. I thought that it was going to go in my favor, and it didn't. It didn't. The prosecution had a star witness. The arresting officer gave damning testimony. It was Officer Anthony Armour. I um, confronted her with the fact that I located the pipe. Uh, first thing I told her, while we were in the vehicle, I told her while she was under arrest. And then I said, hey, I found a crack pipe. Um, as, I mean, you know, is this yours? And, you know, what's in that pipe? And she admitted uh, it was hers and that she knew that it was crack inside the pipe. It was a completely different version of events. And there was no body camera footage and no other evidence. You're in there and you're listening to him. He takes a stand. He says he's going to, you know, takes the oath that he's going to tell the truth. And then you, he proceeds to say a lot of things that you know aren't true. Right. What are you... Th- what are you thinking at the time as you're sitting there listening to him? I, I think the hardest part was not being able to say anything and just have to hear it. Not being able to confront him and say, you know, tell the truth. Oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm hanging on 15 years here. A possible six to 15 years, can you please just tell the truth? I couldn't do that. I think that was the hardest part. It, it made me very angry. You know, it made me very angry that that he had no consideration for another person's life. Francis's lawyers really pushed back at Armour and the fact that he had no substantial proof that the pipe belonged to her. You never ended up testing that pipe, did you? No. You never ended up fingerprinting that pipe, did you? No. You didn't test Ms. Salazar's blood, did you? No. Or her urine? No. Or perform a drug recognition analysis on her, did you? No. 
So you don't know if she was under the influence of drugs at that time, do you? No. You didn't notice any lipstick on the crack pipe, did you? No. You didn't test the crack pipe for DNA, did you? No. Further questions, Your Honor. Thank you. At the risk of facing his own criminal charges, the owner of the vehicle even testified that the crack and pipe were his own. But according to the prosecutor, Elizabeth Lake, none of that mattered. Dave reads from the court transcript her closing argument. This is what the prosecutor told the jury at closing. This is the closing argument from Prosecutor Elizabeth Lake. Quote, you have a number of witnesses. All of them have an incentive to lie. You have an officer who got on the stand and testified. I went, I confronted her, and she said, I'll take responsibility for it. That's it. End of inquiry. That's it. That's it. An officer said it. All of the other witnesses have an incentive to lie. The jury found Francis guilty. In that moment, all she could hear was the judge using his gavel. So when the the hammer came down and it was guilty, I felt frozen in time. I, like, I couldn't breathe. I was just like, because that was the last thing I expected. I did not expect a guilty verdict. So I go to jail. She was sentenced to six years in prison. But then, nearly a year into her sentence, when she least expected it, she got a call from her lawyer. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he he, uh, said, I I believe I have the evidence that we need to get you out of there. And I'm like, what? If there was ever a case that I was sure about, it was this one. I was like, we're going to win this one. There's no way they're going to convict. Chris Duran was Francis's attorney, and he too was shocked by what happened to his client. After all, someone else, the owner of the car, had admitted to the crime under oath. But the weight of Armour's testimony was just too strong for the jury. Duran filed motions, and Francis appealed her case. And then it wasn't until later on that year, November, December of the following year, that Francis's appeal had now been denied and she was going through post-conviction relief, which is kind of like the final appeal. Chris is her trial lawyer. By now, Francis has another lawyer working on this last-ditch effort, the post-conviction relief. And so Chris asks his paralegal to go through everything in the file to send to that lawyer. And that's when she goes and looks at the online docket. She looks at it and she's like, hey, Chris, what what is this? Uh, Looks like the county attorney filed something three months after trial. And I said, what is it? And they said, it's supplemental disclosure. But the disclosure wasn't attached, so I couldn't see what they're alleging they sent to me. Slipped into the court record is this two-page document. The document had been filed in Francis's original court file, but not until three months after the trial was over. It had been sitting there unnoticed until now. All I could see is it was about Officer Armour's personnel record. So I immediately emailed the county attorney, Elizabeth Lake, 
And I said, hey, what is this? This was never sent to me. Can you send it to me? She responded not saying, I'm sorry you never got it, or we sent it to you, you should totally have it in your file. She responded saying, I'll send it to her assigned attorney. I'll send it directly to her post-conviction relief attorney. Chris said, no, you need to send it to me because I was her attorney at the time. Then that's when they sent it over by the end of the day because I threatened to get the court involved. And that's when I saw those nine or 11 pages of uh, just misconduct, substantiated misconduct for truthfulness and a lack thereof by Officer Armar. It was explosive. The file shows that before he testified against Francis Salazar, Anthony Armour had been caught doing things that would normally have placed him on the Brady list. And eventually, it did. That's because the department found that he had wrongfully arrested a woman and lied to his supervisor. But the police department sat on that incriminating information while Armour testified in Francis's case. And I was just so shocked. At that moment, I knew that Frances had been sitting in custody, not just for, you know, the time that she was convicted, but ever since the police department had this information and then ever since the county attorney had this information for nine or ten months without sending it to me. They not only had the information, but according to emails obtained by Dave, Prosecutor Elizabeth Lake knowingly withheld it. Soon after she learned that her star witness, Anthony Armour, had been placed on the Brady list, Lake sent an email to her boss. Do I need to disclose a copy of the Brady packet? She wrote on January 31st, 2017. She also asked, How can we ensure this information is not copied for the defendant or disseminated for other attorneys? Despite her supervisor's clear direction to notify the defense, Lake did not. Instead, she filed for a protective order to try to keep Armour's misconduct sealed. They don't send it to any of her attorneys. They sit on it. And then when they eventually do disclose it to the court, then they don't send it or make sure that it is getting to the right people. I mean, this is exculpatory information. This is something that gets Francis out of prison. You do everything in your power in that moment to make sure it gets to the right people. A Maricopa County Attorney's Office spokesperson said they would not comment on the case because of an ongoing lawsuit filed by Francis Salazar. was the star witness in Francis's trial. He's the only person who said the crack pipe belonged to Francis. And now her attorney has documented proof that Armour had a history of lying. A judge vacates Francis's conviction and orders a new trial. Eventually, the county attorney drops the entire case without a fight. When it was finally a done deal and I was going to be out of there, I was in the counselor's office and I was on the phone and I just remember jumping up and down and thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Chris. I remember they opened the 
door to let me out. And I went running. I'm not a runner. <laughs> I lost my wind real quick, but I was like, I'm going home. And people are looking at me like, look at this crazy lady. Like, nobody goes home from here. <laughs> Nearly two years after her trial, Frances was finally released from prison. When I was getting out, I got in the car, in the van. And when the officer opened the door, I'm like, my... I, my voice, I said, hi, it was so high-pitched, you know, because I was, like, just so excited and just hugged my family and, and just just loved on them. And I just, oh. Hi! <laughs> oh, my God. 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 Oh, and my daughter walks in, and the grandkids walk in, and she's sitting on her everyday recliner. And uh, she starts talking to him, and then I walk in, and she's like, oh, my God. And I just, I remember getting on my knees and sitting in front of her and, and just hugging her, and my daughter took a picture. It's the most beautiful picture ever. Um, she just grabbed my face. Like that, and we just looked at each other. It was just a beautiful moment. Let's face it, Frances was lucky. She had a lawyer who wouldn't give up. All the systems and laws that were put in place to prevent this kind of thing failed her. The Brady ruling didn't prevent a cop with a history of lying from testifying against this woman. The Brady list didn't make his past more transparent. In the end, all the evidence was not disclosed, and Francis ended up in jail. So what good is a list of bad cops if no one knows it exists? And how many more are out there? How many of these guys have jumped from one county to the other and then their history didn't follow them? And so then how many people aren't getting their constitutionally required, you know, disclosure? And so that was an issue. Are there these nomadic cops where their history of misconduct isn't following them? That's what Dave was determined to change. That's next time on Verified. Full disclosure. I'm Natasha Del Toro. 